Second Kings chapter 10. I was tempted to give my wife two more minutes to tell others about my grandchild, my newest grandchild. But, but I'll do it from up here. All right, Second Kings chapter 10. Last week we left off in verse 27 and we learned about a Hebrew word that was translated as the words break down because Jehu's men break down the image of Baal and the house of Baal and the word meant to destroy. I thought of a, I guess it's a silly example, but it might help somebody remember what it means. If I built a house out of Legos and when I was a little boy, I did that a lot. Now, we didn't have the fancy ones they have now. We just had plain old Legos. That's what we could afford. And if I built a house out of Legos and somebody broke it down, they just took them apart and scattered them around the room, I probably wouldn't have been very happy. But I could just put it back together again. So even though it was inconvenient, they didn't destroy my Legos. But if... All the Legos were broken into tiny fragments. I mean smashed up like dirt. They couldn't be used again to build a house, could they? And that's the image we have in our text when it said that Jehu's men broke down or break down. It's, we would say broke down. It's just a difference in the English used in the 18th century and now, or the 17th century as well. Not only were these images burned and the image of Baal destroyed, but the house of Baal was also break down or destroyed. And I'm sure it was a beautiful building. It was, at least to the naked eye, to the worldly person, and we might even say, oh, what a beautiful building, what a beautiful structure and wonderful uh, artisanship and so forth wasn't it enough that the images were destroyed couldn't the house itself been converted to something godly you know those are questions people might have well i want you to think about something if a drug dealer had a trunk full of money and for some reason he decided to stop by this church and give it to us rather than let it be seized by law enforcement. Now, you might have some who would say, well, we'll just put that money to good use. Well, I'm going to tell you, I wouldn't take it from him. I'd say you take that stuff straight to the police or call the police out here or whatever needed to be done. You know, God has arranged so that his people have the honorably earned money to give to his work. He's never short a dime on his work. Now, some people don't get the blessing of giving to it because they are hard-hearted, disobedient. And a lost person certainly wouldn't see any reason to give to the work of the Lord. But that work is carried out without God having to depend on the world's way of doing things. 
So when you think about this house of Jehu, or this house that Jehu destroyed, the house of Baal, he didn't say, hey, let's, let's preserve all of these uh, furnishings and the gold and, and the walls and the framework and the nails and whatever was used. We could use that to save a little money. No, he destroyed it. Now, on the other hand, if you say, well, it still could have been used, and it could have. That wasn't God's perfect will at that time to use that house for anything. We'll see why in a moment. <clears throat> but on the other hand, I have seen two gambling establishments, one in Hunt County and one in Rockwall County. And they're former gambling establishments because they were running illegal eight-liners in the back. And the way we knew it was an eight-liner was it said for amusement only. <laughs> that was our first clue. It wasn't for amusement only. <laughs> and, of course, the state wants their pound of flesh out of the gambling establishments. But I've seen those two places turned into churches. Both of them are Baptist churches. And they're still standing today. I have no idea what they preach. I've not been in one. But they're still churches. So certainly it can be done. But you know, I've also seen the church where my grandfather pastored in Frederick, Oklahoma. That was his last pastorate before he retired from being a pastor. He never retired from serving, but he retired from being a pastor. And that was the church, it was a special church to me because he pastored, and also that's where I came to salvation through faith in Christ, and he also baptized me there. Well, that church became a food pantry. And the last time we were in Frederick, Oklahoma, we drove through there to see where family lived and so forth. They're all dead now, the ones who lived there. And what used to be called Trinity Baptist Church is now called the Tillman County Food Bank. And that's where able-bodied people drive their nice vehicles to the food bank and they wheel basket loads of food out to their car so they don't have to spend their own money on groceries. That's what that one was. We watched it happen. We sat across the street and I said, look at that. Look at that Yukon that just pulled in there and watch those people wheel those, that food out there, every one of them able-bodied. And they could load food. Well, they can load wood too. You know what I mean. They can go make their own money. Now, they don't spend their money on groceries, but they can buy cigarettes and lottery tickets and alcohol and illegal drugs and all of that. And whether the house of Baal could have been put to good use or not, Jehu didn't spare it. God doesn't need for the worldly man to supply his people with their defiled provisions, right? If he wants to... He owns everything, and if he wants something built, and this was the case in the Old Testament, he told them exactly how to build it. I mean down to where things went, to the right or to the left, and how long and how tall and how wide something was supposed to be. We spent a lot of time studying that when we studied the books of Exodus and Leviticus. If God wanted a house of worship built there at that house of Baal, he would have told Jehu, hey, tear everything down, but don't tear the building down. 
but that's not what he did. The house of Baal was destroyed, and then something else was done with that plot of land. And let's look in chapter 10 and verse 27, in the middle of the verse where it says, and break down the house of Baal and made it a draught house or a draft house. It's been pronounced either way. Unto this day. The Hebrew word for draught house is used one time in the King James Version. And it means a cesspool. It's a sewer. How about that? Not only was the house of Baal destroyed. But the land it was on was turned in. To a sewer, a place where human waste was collected and dumped. And that, my friend, is how God saw the house of Baal. Which is really what many so-called churches are across this world. They're just spiritual cesspools. That's all they are. Their buildings may as well be torn down and the people scattered because they've got a lost preacher Preaching to lost people, telling them, hey, you're just fine. Or, on the other hand, telling them, now, you'll never really know if you're saved. You could be one day and then lose it the next. Both are equally bad. Because in neither case is the teacher, the preacher, telling them to rely on the finished work of Christ. Nor are the people believing that that's the only way to be saved and that you can't be unsaved from it. Right, Brother Doug? You're sealed. And when a congregation is okay with removing the whole counsel of the Bible from their midst, when they're okay with allowing their leadership to make decisions that are contrary, that are dead set against God's word, then those churches may as well be sewers. This is a good lesson about that. That's how much good they are on the side of the Lord. And that's how unclean they are for the people who are in them. When we studied the book of Jeremiah, one of the many indictments God had against the people, he said, my house is broken down, but you've got beautiful ceilings on your houses. That ought not to be so. Let's look at verse 28. Thus, that means in the way mentioned above, Jehu destroyed Baal out of Israel. Now, if you stop right there and you don't look any further into Jehu's life, at this point you will count him as a hero of the faith. Without knowing what I talked to you about in Hosea a week or two ago, without reading the rest of this, you'll think, boy, Jehu finished his race faithfully. He wiped out the Baal worshipers in the church of Baal from Israel. But, look at verse 29. How be it? That word means but. How be it? From the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, Jehu departed not from after them to wit the golden calves that were in Bethel and that were in Dan. You would not have expected to read this about Jehu. You wouldn't. But you know what? When we studied the life of Solomon, 
and how he asked the Lord for understanding to judge that great people. At that point, and with all the sacrifices that were made and the thousands of animals that were offered up over that period of time, and the people's hearts turning to the Lord, you would have never thought, boy, Solomon's going to go down in flames. He's going to have way more women, which would be more than one, than he needs. And concubines and all of that. And he's going to go down in flames. He's going to have a terrible finish. You wouldn't have thought that about him, but it sure happened, didn't it? We read about it. It was sad. And you wouldn't have thought it about Jehu. When good things are listed after your name, and then the word but or how be it appears, that's never a good thing. And as for Jehu, what comes after the how be it is terrible. It's heartbreaking. And in some ways he reminds me of Solomon whose beginning was wonderful but whose ending was so sad. It says in our text, looking there in verse 29, how be it from the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Now we studied those sins at length in 1 Kings. We learned that Jeroboam was an idolater and he led Israel to worship other gods, departing from the only God, the true God. And now Jehu has this same testimony upon him for all the good he did in the sight of the Lord. And at least he did that because Jeroboam did no good. Jeroboam worked only evil in the sight of the Lord. But for all the good Jehu did in the sight of the Lord, he has a stain on his legacy. And it's this part of his epitaph right here. From the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he did not depart from after them. Jeroboam's sin was more egregious than, say, any particular Israelite. Let's say there was an Israelite named Otis, and nobody really knew Otis, and he was a hermit and lived in a cave, and he sinned and cursed the Lord and died lost. Tragic enough, terrible enough. But Jeroboam's sin was more egregious because he led the people to sin. He was a leader, just like Jehu is a leader here in our text. And there's no doubt about it that he's a leader. We've seen his acts. We've seen how he's inspired those to follow him, and he's been victorious. And both in the military and as a king, remember Jehu is, was anointed to be king. He was in a position of leadership. And his responsibility as a leader was by God's help to lead the people to obey God's word. That's the only way to have righteousness in a nation is for the leaders to lead people to obey God's word. Now, we don't even look anything like that in this country, do we? And we haven't for some time. Nor anywhere else in the world, for that matter. Israel included. The presidential oath of office is required under Article 2, Section 1 of our Constitution. And it's required to be in this form, these 35 words. 
I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. End of quote. When George Washington took this quote, he placed his hand upon a Bible. Now, why didn't he place it on the Constitution? There was one president who did that, John Quincy Adams. But he placed it on the Bible because he needed God's help to fulfill that oath. And the history cancelers, the George Washington cancelers in the world will talk about, well, he had had a slave, or well, he was this or he was that. Listen, we're all sinners, saved by the grace of God if you're a Christian. We can do a laundry list of anybody and show all the dirt that they have in their lives. Mine, yours, George Washington's, and the persons who try to cancel him as well. But under George Washington's leadership in the military, if one of his soldiers took the Lord's name in vain, it was a severe lashing. That's how much he thought of God's name, is that it would not be taken in vain. All but five presidents used the Bible for their swearing in. Yes, even Barack Obama and Joe Biden used the Bible for their swearing in. Yet so many presidents, after doing so, have done everything other than honor the counsel that's in that book on which they placed their hands. In making their decisions, consulting the Bible, listening to the spiritual advisor, and I'll tell you, I don't know what all was told to these presidents in their conversations with Billy Graham, but I have a real good idea that he told them to do what was right and that he would pray for them when they were wrong. When a person is sworn in to testify in court, he places his hand on a Bible in some cases. But whether he does or not, he is asked in his swearing in or her swearing in before testifying, do you solemnly swear that the testimony you are about to give in this cause will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. Now, why do we need God's help to tell the truth? Well, that's easy because our flesh is sinful. Our flesh wants to do everything but tell the truth, particularly when it makes us look bad or embarrasses us. Our flesh wants to cover things up, make ourselves look good, or perhaps if we testify about the defendant and we don't want him to get in trouble, then we may say all sorts of things like, oh, he was at my house when the bank was robbed, and it's not true. And whether a leader swears on the Bible or not, whether a witness swears to tell the truth, so help him God or not, the leader is still bound He's obligated to rule righteously. He can't say, well, I, I never swore on the Bible or that Bible was a, a fake or I didn't really mean it. You're still bound to rule in righteousness. Just like every person is bound to obey the law perfectly. And those of us who have realized, I didn't do it and I can't do it. Jesus did. I'm going with him. He's my substitute. But for the rest, they're still bound. They bound themselves. And the text tells us further here 
Look back in verse 29 about the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. It says, Jehu departed not from after them. That is, he departed not from after the sins of Jeroboam. And departed means put away. So because he departed not from these sins, that means he did not put them away. We see this Hebrew word used and translated as the words put away back in Genesis chapter 35 and verse 2. Genesis 35 and verse 2. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. Put away. In fact, we came across this Hebrew word twice in our recent study of Proverbs chapter 4. You'll hear it as the words put away instead of departed. But it'll help you understand the text that shows what, Jer- what Jehu did not do with the sins of Jeroboam. Proverbs 4.24 says, Put away from thee a froward mouth. That, and if you were here Wednesday or you listened in, that means a crooked mouth. A froward mouth and perverse lips put far from thee. And then in verse 27 of Proverbs chapter 4, from this past Wednesday, we read about the word remove, which is from the same Hebrew word as departed and put away. It's the same thing. And it said in Proverbs 4.27, Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. So whether it's the word remove or the words put away or departed from, we learn the Bible teaches us a vital truth about sin. You don't just dodge sin. You don't just try to avoid it passively. You have to actively turn from it. We have to actively depart from it. We have to actively put it away from us. All of those are active. They don't come from just sitting in your house in your recliner and going, oh, if I just stay right here, I won't sin. Now you'll have sinful thoughts. You won't go out and do the things God's told you to do. You won't pray for somebody. You'll be sitting there saying, okay, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. What's going to happen? The devil will say, well, here's something for you to think about. And you do it. If a drunkard decides to stop drinking alcohol, he says, you know, the Bible says, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And this stuff is poison to me. It's killing me. I've lost my family, my job, my dignity. And let's say that drunkard has a half a bottle of whiskey left. And it's in his cabinet. So he just leaves it there. And he reasons within himself, well, I just won't touch it. I'll avoid it. I'll just sit over here and it can sit over there and then I'll be okay. What he needs to do is pour it down the toilet and throw the bottle away. In the trash. That's an active putting away of sin. 
If he leaves the bottle there, what's going to happen? His flesh is going to tempt him again. And he will be more likely, almost certainly, will drink from it again. Because it's right there in his house, right there in his cabinet. If he does so, it will be because he had not departed from sin. He didn't put it away. So how does a drunkard keep from drinking alcohol in his house? Make sure it's never in his house. How does he keep from drinking it, period? Make sure it's never in his hand. How does he keep from drinking it, keeping it out of his hand? Don't go and sit in a bar or down the liquor aisle and pick one up and go, Oh, I wonder how they're making this stuff now. Oh, it's pretty cold. You see? Put it away. It takes action to do that. You can't just hope. The drunkard can't just hope that he won't drink again. Or another example, a man goes to the beach and he stares at all the women that are wearing what little bathing suits they wear. And he has improper thoughts about them. And he knows it's wrong, so he reasons within himself, I'll go to that beach and I'll look at the women, but I'm not going to have improper thoughts about them. I'm just not going to do it. That doesn't work. He goes to the beach, he looks, and he has improper thoughts. So he says, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go to that beach, but I won't look at any of the women. I'll just look straight ahead into the ocean. That doesn't work because his eyes soon wander. And he's looking and he's lusting again. He's back in the same mess as he was before. What he needs to do is don't go to that beach anymore. Depart from it. Well, are we not supposed to go to beaches? Let me tell you something. I am an avid fisherman. And when I drive up and down the Texas coastline, I'm looking for a place where there's nobody. I don't want anybody near me when I'm fishing. Unless it's my dad or somebody I took with me. I don't need to visit with anybody. I do that right here. I do that at home and at work. When I go fishing, I'm not there to talk. I'm not there to visit unless I have somebody with me uh, who I invited. And I'm sure not there to throw my lure or my bait out there where there's a bunch of people swimming around. They're going to scare the fish off. And there are miles and miles of Texas Beach and Florida Beach and Alabama Beach and everywhere else there's a beach where nobody's around. So what this man needs to do is go find a place where nobody is if he really just wants to go to the beach. You see, it's active, isn't it? I don't want anybody to know where my fishing holes are either, Brother Ronnie. That's another reason I don't want to fish around them. But I know one thing. When I'm standing on the bank of Little Elm Creek, north of Lake Louisville, and there's not a soul around, and all I can hear is birds. My eyes will not be tempted to look upon those women and sin. If I don't go into a liquor store and pick up a bottle of liquor and take it to the counter, my hands will not be tempted to take that home, and then my heart say, hey, let's have a drink of that. Jehu departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and perhaps he thought he could deal with his sin passively, but that didn't work. You may be wondering, what did he do wrong? What is it that he actually did wrong? Well, do you see in verse 29 the words to wit? 
They're in italics. And if you've been with us long, you've learned that when words in the Bible are in italics, that means the translators put them there. They weren't in the original text, but they're necessary to help with the translation from Hebrew into English. If you read Hebrew, we would say you're reading it backwards. It goes straight across from right to left. Well, for you all, it'd be like this. So the beginning of their book is the back of the book, isn't it, for us? And that's just a difference in the way, the direction in which they write. There are also differences in, in punctuation and all sorts of notations that are made and how words are understood and pronounced. It's that way with every language. So to translate, sometimes we have to put a word in there that helps us understand. It connects the two thoughts in a sentence so that in English we understand it. Some people would say, oh, that's adding to God's word. Well, you know what? Those are the same people who say, if it's not King James 1611 only, which none of them have, by the way, I don't read it. Well, you're, if you have a 1611 translated to English, you're reading italics in there at some point, and those were words added by the translator. I don't want to get off on that, but just in case you get tempted to start going that way, to wit, what is the best way to understand the words to wit? Because we don't use that much. Is to think of the word namely or for example. There are several ways you could understand it. Namely. Look back in the text then. And where it says to wit, let me just read that. Jehu departed not from after them, namely the golden calves that were in Bethel and that were in Dan. That was the problem. He departed not from after them. And we spent a lot of time talking about what it means to depart from, to put away, to remove. It doesn't mean just leave it alone. There's more to it, particularly with this sin. The, the text does not tell us that Jehu himself worshipped the golden calves. It doesn't tell us that. I'm assuming he did not. It was his responsibility, though, as the king of Israel to do what? Put them away. Remove them from the land. Why he took it upon himself, or actually he was being obedient to the Lord, he tore down the, the idols of Baal. He didn't leave them there. He didn't just say, well, I'll just tell people, don't go in there. Don't you all worship in that place. Don't you bow down to those idols. Guess what? God already did that in Exodus chapter 20, didn't he? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or bow down thyself unto them. God already said not to do it. Well, that didn't work for the people, the disobedient ones. So he didn't just leave that alone. But as a king, it's not good enough that he didn't go himself and offer offerings at the church of the golden calf. In 1 Kings 19, verse 16, I'm just refreshing your memory. 1 Kings 19, 16, the first part of it, God said to Elijah, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. The anointing of Jehu as king was not so he could check off a box on his bucket list and say, Well, I've been a general, I've been a king, what next? That was not the reason he was anointed as king. It wasn't so he could have a, another line on his resume 
that says, well, here, I've done this and done this. The word king, we don't overlook this. The word king is from a Hebrew word that means to reign or to rule. In order to reign or to rule, you have to have someone under you, don't you? You have to have subjects. I get tickled when I meet a law enforcement officer from a really small town, and they refer to themselves as the chief of police. How many officers do you have? Well, it's just me. So you're just as much an officer as you are a chief, as you are a lieutenant and a sergeant, aren't you? I guess somebody has to be the chief. But in this case, Israel was under Jehu. He was their king, meaning he ruled, he reigned over them. And not only did he have authority over them, but he had responsibility for them. That's huge. And that responsibility included leading people in a way that pleased God, away from sin and toward righteousness. In, for example, if Jehu saw or became aware of one Israelite defrauding another Israelite, stealing from them, he would take action. And that fraudster would be punished. And he would do it even though he, the king, was not a victim nor perpetrator, but somebody in Israel got hurt by it, one of his subjects. Now, if somebody in Assyria was a fraudster and defrauded another, Jehu would say, well, what is that? You see that. That's your, your problem. But if it happens in Israel, it's my problem because I'm the king over Israel because God put me there. So if Jehu was responsible for making sure people were protected in a legal sense, as in the case of a theft or a fraud, then he was even more responsible for making sure they were protected as the people of God. What brought wrath upon Israel? It was sin, wasn't it? Every time. You could trace back God's wrath being poured out on Israel or Judah to their own sin. And when a king knows his people are sinning, he's got a duty to rebuke them, to correct them, and lead them to repentance. But if a king takes a hands-off approach and he says, well, their problem really doesn't affect me. I mean, I'm a Baptist over here. I'm a, I'm a Christian and they can worship who they worship and they can do what they want. If Jehu had done that, then he's not really ruling or reigning over his people, is he? And that's what the word king requires. If you're a king, you have to rule. You have to reign. Being a ruler or one who reigns is not just a title. It's not just to make a person famous or powerful. In fact, it's a whole lot more about responsibility than it is about privilege. A whole lot more. Have you all ever noticed, and perhaps it's been drawn to your attention by the media over the years, how weathered and gray a president gets in just four years? And I don't care which side of the aisle they're on. All of them. Do you know why? That job is like being a king. The pressure, the stress, the lack of sleep, 
the constant criticism and hounding and just everything. Whether a president is right or wrong, it's stressful. It ages them. It looks like somebody poured a bucket of flour in their head by the time they've been in there four or five years. I've been dipped in flour too. I just try to keep it down for the for the audience. You know, when I was a little boy, I had to follow the rules of my house. Imagine that. My mom and dad had rules. When they divorced and their spouses got together and then we had some more rules and there were always rules, whether I liked them or not. And I remember as a little boy thinking to myself, especially as a teenager, you know your brain is so developed as a teenager. So you think. And I remember thinking, one day I'm going to be the man of the house. I'm going to rule over a house and reign over it. And then I'll get to do what I want to. I don't have to do what everybody else tells me. I know you all are more spiritual than you were. Never thought that way. What was I thinking about when I had those thoughts? I was thinking about the privilege of power. I was not thinking about the burden of responsibility, or you might say the responsibility of power. I was thinking about the privilege of power, not the responsibility. And when I became the man of my house, and especially when my children came along and became teenagers, the responsibility of my power was sometimes overwhelming. Some of y'all are just saying amen right through. I had to make sure three little girls were fed. And, of course, when they got to be teenagers, all their friends that came over were fed. But make sure these three little girls were fed and clothed and loved and protected and taught correctly and prayed for and all of the other weighty requirements that come with being a father. And rather than hoping that my little children, when they were learning to walk and were toddlers, Rather than hoping that they would just decide not to drink the poison under my sink cabinet, I placed security devices on them, which my middle daughter defeated in no time. Rather than hoping they would think twice about running outside and to the street, I locked the doors, put multiple locks on them while they were inside so they couldn't get out. I removed from them... Are you following me? I removed from them the possibility of getting hurt. I took those things away by making them inaccessible. I didn't think as I did when I was a little boy. And as my children had become adults and married and had their own children, their own houses and their own careers, that weight's become a lot lighter. It's a different kind of weight now. I still have some. Don't we, Brittany? We'll always have a little weight on our shoulders because of our children. We're always their parents. But it's lighter. And, and Jehu understood the responsibility he had to his men in the military. There was no question. He was brought up that way. But what he didn't fully comprehend or embrace was the responsibility he had to Israel as its king. And rather than breaking down all of the golden calves and all of the houses of idol worship in Bethel and Dan, he just left them standing there. Maybe he thought to himself, well, surely the people won't be 
foolish enough to worship golden calves. After all, they had to have heard by now what I did to the house of Baal. Killed every worshiper in there, tore the house down, and tore down the idols. Let that be their example. But he left those places standing, and I believe in doing so, he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Do you see how that happens? Even if he didn't go and worship there himself, nor offer sacrifices to those golden calves, he let other people do it. And those were people over whom God gave him responsibility. Let's look now in verse 30. And the Lord said unto Jehu, Because thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes, and hast done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in mine heart, thy children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Now, do you see this? God spoke directly to Jehu. He didn't go through a prophet. And this right here should have caused Jehu to fall on his face. Say, oh, let not the Lord speak to me. I'm about to die. That was the Old Testament people's fear. Should have caused him at least to repent and to correct the things he had left undone in Bethel and Dan. But notice these accolades God is giving him are very specific for a single thing, and that is what he did to the house of Jehu. So it's kind of like if your child comes in with a report card and that report card has bad conduct grade and bad grade in math and reading and so forth. But in PE, there's an A. That would be like you saying, all right, bruiser, you did wonderful in PE. I'm so proud of you for doing well in PE. What's the unsaid part? You didn't do well anywhere else. There's a lot of things that we could talk about, but I'm going to tell you that you did really well in PE. So for that, you get an extra piece of pizza tonight, whatever the reward might be. He said to Jehu, thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes. In fact, this is the only thing for which God will ever tell us Thou hast done well. What we do because it's right in our own eyes is not what pleases God. It's what we do because it's right in his eyes. And how will you know what that is if you don't study your Bibles? Everything we do that's right in God's eyes is pleasing to God. That's why Jesus said, for I always please the Father. I always do those things which please the Father. There in the book of John. And that's because everything that was right in Jesus' sight was right in God's sight because Jesus was God the Son. In Matthew chapter 25, in the parable of the talents, the Lord of the talents said to two of those servants who had gone and put his money to usury and made money, he said to them, well done. Thou good and faithful servant, thou hast been faithful over a few things. But the one who hid his talent and profited nothing. Jesus made the application for that 
servant, that unfaithful servant, in verse 30 there in Matthew 25, he said, And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What did that servant do? He did what he thought was right in his own eyes. He didn't do what he thought, what, what his Lord thought was right. He didn't do what was right in his Lord's eyes. And who was it that was told, well done? Everybody for just trying their best? No, it was the ones who were faithful over a few things. They weren't commanded to do anything grand, but just to make a profit on a small amount of money, and apparently it was not that hard to do. They weren't told to rule a city or a kingdom or do anything else spectacular. And on the other hand, no matter what else the unprofitable servant did do, whether he made an A in English and an A in math and all that, what he did not do was the one thing his Lord commanded him to do. And because of that, he was unprofitable. And no matter what else Jehu did, the one thing that God said, you did well, well done, was the thing that God saw as right in his own eyes. Destroying the house of Ahab. And with that, we'll close and we'll continue studying verse 30 next week. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the truth that we've learned and for the Spirit of God who's our teacher. As we go into our next service, Lord, we pray that each one here would have a learning spirit about them, that we would hunger for the truth of your word. We'd not be removed from it, but that we would remove our foot from evil. We would depart from the sins that so easily beset us. And we know that this is possible alone by your grace. We ask you to give our pastor what he needs to teach, what we need to understand. And Lord, may everything done and said in here, all of our thoughts, be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.